So we're starting a new series. And this series is going to be on the book of Isaiah. And I'm calling this Hearing from Heaven. And I originally was going to do a series on sort of going through kind of all the, the, uh, the major prophets. There's four major prophets. It's going to spend a lot of time, you know, kind of developing each one. And I realized that the amount of, of just like substance there was going to be almost virtually impossible for us to deal with on a Sunday morning. And so uh, it became very apparent to me that what we were going to need to do is pick one. And we're probably going to pick others later on, but what, what I felt like the Lord led me to was going through the book of Isaiah with you. And today, uh, it's going to be maybe a little bit different than, than um, you know, typical message in that really what I want to do is establish kind of an overview of the book of Isaiah to help give us a little bit of context for kind of the future weeks that we're going to deal with. And so... Um, you know, we're not going to look at, at massive amounts of scripture today, although we will go to a few places. Uh, but this is really going to be more setting up some of the uh, um, some of the, the the historical, some of the geopolitical, some of the cultural things that were going on. Because if you just open up Isaiah to a random spot, it's just a lot of like po- poetic poetry. Uh, try saying that a couple times fast, and and uh, it, it you know it's very easy to go you know and I'm speaking to this and I'm speaking to that and this guy over here do this and you're you're kind of lost on what's really happening here, and so what I want to do is I want to take us through and I'm going to be a little bit more uh, kind of in some notes today to make sure that I kind of unpack this as systematically as I can, um, and and get you to a place to where you have some context on how to read the book of Isaiah. My goal today is, is actually to, um, you know, that I could give you enough nuggets that first of all, that if you begin to study Isaiah on your own, which I hope that you do, especially over this next month, that, that you'll start understanding a little bit more about what's happening. And, and the other thing is that, you know, maybe, maybe uh, somebody in the future wants to do a life group on Isaiah. Maybe you want to, you know, kind of do a, whole, a Bible study with your family on Isaiah, that you have some more to kind of rely on in this as you're looking through this, okay? Uh, so we're going to kind of dive in and, uh, and see how we do here. Is that all right? So the book of Isaiah is, is really referred to oftentimes as the prince of the prophets. Isaiah himself is referred to as the prince of prophets. And the reason for this is because, well, it's several factors, but first of all, Isaiah sort of stands alone as a book in scripture in that it, it, um, it does things that virtually no other Old Testament prophetic book does. Uh, It's actually referred to oftentimes as the Bible in miniature that you literally see within the book of Isaiah, you see sort of all the themes of the New Testament, or excuse me, of the, of the whole of scripture, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see this here, that it's literally broken up into two halves in the same way that the Bible was broken up into two halves. You have kind of this first half of judgment and this second half of redemption that you see take place in the book of Isaiah. Um, we see, you know, uh, this, the, the God is judge. We see God is the compassionate redeemer. Virtually every major theme from scripture can be found in the book of Isaiah. Another thing that sets Isaiah apart is the book that it addresses about two and some argue three different settings uh, and time periods. The first 
is Isaiah's own time period. So when did Isaiah live? He lived from about 740 to 700. 740 to 700, okay? Now, um, if you're not familiar with, with kind of how uh, BC dating works, it starts in the higher numbers and moves towards the lower numbers as it gets to zero, okay? So he was, his ministry, he ministered, for, Isaiah preached for about 50 years uh, in, in Judah, and, and we'll talk about that in here in a minute, but he preached for about 50 years, and this was during this time period of 740 to 700. Uh, a second, what we, in the second time period we see is in chapters, and that's about chapters 1 through 39 take place during this period. In chapters 40 through 55, we see Isaiah address sort of a second time period that was the Judean, uh, Judean exile to Babylon, now, here's the interesting thing is, Isaiah wasn't alive during the Judean exile to Babylon. It happened about 150, 200 years after his death. So how could he address that? Well, this has led to all sorts of questions. And some scholars have determined that there are actually multiple Isaiahs who authored the book. Not that they were all named Isaiah, but these were disciples of Isaiah that you had what's known as the proto-Isaiah, the the real Isaiah, the person who wrote chapters 1 through 39. And then they had what's called the deutero-Isaiah that wrote the second portion, and then the trito-Isaiah that wrote the third portion. And to which I say to that, (laughs) poo-poo. Because the Bible tells us, first of all, that the book was written by Isaiah, Second of all, Jesus quotes from the second portion of Isaiah that is supposed to be according to some scholars. Now, I'll tell you, scholars are divided on this. There's, a, there's all sorts of fabulous scholars on the side of a single authorship of the person of Isaiah, okay? Uh, this is not a minority opinion. Um, and Jesus quotes from the second portion of Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah said, that's good enough for me if Jesus said it. And so what we see here is that Isaiah, what's his office? His office is that of a prophet. He is prophesying for the future. He's not a very good prophet if he can't prophesy 150 years in the future. Okay, and we wouldn't call him a prophet. He would just be a historian saying, here's what happened during my day. But but the Lord actually, and this is the beauty of the book, is the Lord gives him a picture of what was to come. He didn't have all the details, but he had some of them. And we see specifically he has the name Cyrus in chapter 45. Before Cyrus was even born, he gave the name of the ruler that was gonna come in. Okay, it's very interesting things. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, and what we have here, there's, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. There's also 66 books in the Bible. Now, that Isaiah didn't write chapter one, chapter two. That was added later. But just to show you the comparisons between Isaiah as a book and scripture as a whole, there's a lot that people would point to. Okay, so that second time period takes place from about 585 to 540 BC. And then we see sort of a final time period that is addressed towards the end of the book that is really sort of this prophetic language and, and, and it, it kind of overlaps kind of multiple things of both Israel's return out of exile, which never happened, by the way. When a nation goes into exile, historically, they never come back from it. It does not exist except in Israel and specifically with Judah. 
okay? And so we see this happen that the Lord, they went into exile, but the Lord brought them back to their homeland. Uh, and we'll talk about that more. Um, the, the next thing here, or the, kind of that last part, is that we see this, this whole concept that, that essentially um, it is, is the, at the end of the book, is it's the, the redemption of Israel back to out of exile, but this is overlapped with an awareness of essentially the millennial reign of Christ, as well as our future with him in eternity in heaven. And you see this prophetic language where all these things are sort of combined together and described in this way. And so, you know, you're going, is this talking about the return from the exile or is this talking about Christ returning? And the answer is yes. Okay, because for the prophet, as he's seeing the future, he is seeing these things take place and these are overlapping, you know, uh, um, in, in his sort of prophetic poetry that comes out here. Another thing that's unique about Isaiah is that Isaiah is somebody that not just speaks about the future. You know, we have books of the Bible that speak about the future. Isaiah is speaking to a people of the future. He's writing in such a way that he's saying, hey, you who are reading this, who are alive during this time period, you need to know this thing. And he's speaking to them with authority in a way in which so much so, actually Cyrus, who was the king who let them out of, of exile back to their land, his, he find, his scholars find his name written in a Hebrew prophecy from 150, 200 years before and say, uh, sir, you're mentioned here. And Cyrus, and as it says, basically talks about God's anointing on this foreign king. And Cyrus goes, you know what? I don't know if that's talking about me or not, but I want it to be talking about me. So let's follow that. And part of the text was actually partially responsible for Israel's actual uh, release from exile. Written so much more before. This is another reason why we know that there wasn't just, you know, there, why there wasn't multiple authors. It was a single author. Um, and so the, the, uh, we talked about the discrepancy of authorship. Um, uh, and so what, what I'm going to do today is, is try to cover some of the, the history as much as I can, kind of up to um, the, the first 39 chapters. Now, I know we're like, haven't even got to verse one yet. So, um, uh, but, but bear with me, we're going we're gonna to clip through this pretty good. And if we got to push it into two weeks, we will. Uh, but I want to give you as much as I can here. So first off, let's take a look here at Isaiah 1.1. Do we have that? So it says here, it says, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, Judah is, was, um, uh, at this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the, the northern kingdom, which was just referred to as Israel, and there was the southern kingdom that's referred to as Judah. Judah was made up of two, two tribes of Israel. We know there's 12 tribes of Israel. Judah was two of those tribes, okay? It was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And the king on the throne of Judah was the lineage of King David, okay? And, and so um, uh, Isaiah actually served five different kings, we believe. He mentions four here says that uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that Isaiah, son of Amos, uh, uh, Amos saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Really, all these kings were, were kind of not very good kings other than King Hezekiah had some really good moments. And, and God restores his life. 
But it's believed that there was a fifth king that Isaiah served under. And the reason that Isaiah doesn't mention him here is because according to, uh, um, you, know, you know, what I would say greater church history is Isaiah was killed by the fifth king. And that king was Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in all of Judah's history. And when, do we have the Hebrews passage, Hebrews 11? I can't remember if I gave you that one or not. Just give me a yay or nay if not. Okay, so in Hebrews 11, what we see is we see in this faith hall of fame that you know all these people did this by faith and did that by faith. And then it talks about those that who were still walking in faith did not see everything that was promised to them. And it talks about that some were you know destitute and broken. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, you know, all these sort of things, homeless. They lost their, you know, women, you know, received their children back to life again. And, and, and it says that some were sawed in two. Well, guess who that was? That was according to the best history that we have, Isaiah. And what Manasseh did is, is he had his, uh, um, basically his executioners, they took a hollowed out log and they put, they, they strapped Isaiah into that and kind of forced him into this. And then they used the hollowed out log sort of as you would have like a, you know, guides for a saw and they put a big saw in there and they cut him in half, Okay. That was Isaiah's demise for the sake of the faith. By, you know, you would expect that would be the pagan king to do that. Well, you know, we could argue Manasseh was the pagan king, but you would expect it not to be the king of Judah, but it was a king of Judah, according to history, that actually did that. So we have Isaiah serving under five different kings. You know, you think about that today, you know, probably the only person that I could think of, well, maybe, you know, names like Billy Graham, Okay, or or uh, uh, um, you know uh, you know Charles Colson or something like that that served multiple presidents and served under them. I mean, how, I don't even know how many presidents Billy Graham served under. It was a lot, and that he had relationship with. He acted as a voice for the faith. For uh, some listened, some didn't, uh, but he was there as a voice that would not go away and who always had a way to kind of get in front of them. Isaiah referred to as the Prince of Prophets partially because of his access that he had to the royal family. In fact, some people actually believe that he might've been part of the royal family himself because of this access that he had. Okay, so starting in, uh, um, uh, just for some more background here, between the time periods of 900 to 609 BC, okay, so about 300 year period, the nation of Assyria was the most prominent force in all of this part of really ancient Near East. And the nation of Assyria, it's important to point out, is not the same thing as Syria, okay? Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, and then Syria, okay? We We hear about Syria in the news today. Guess what you don't hear about in the news today? Assyria. Why? Because they're no more. Okay, and this would have, they would have been kind of uh, um, basically in, in part of what, you know, today would be Iraq. Uh, and, you know, Iraq is a pretty big nation. So actually part of Babylon was, would, would have been Iraq as well. And so they kind of, that was sort of their central area. And, and um, uh, but at one time they had a massive, massive kingdom. And the reason they had a massive kingdom is because they were very good politically and they were very good militarily. And we see 
that really their rule sort of spread from about the Tigris River in Mesopotamia, uh, extending into Babylon all the way down to, and their ultimate goal was eventually to get to Egypt. And it took them some time to get there. And as you know, you know, you read through uh, the Old Testament, Egypt is sort of the Pharaoh's the guy. And so as Assyria is gaining prominence, what do they want to do? They want to go take out the guy. Because Egypt was a center of, of strength, and so whoever, whoever could control that was seen really as, as you know, uh, uh, essentially a god. And so, um, basically, what happened is, as Assyria is trying to move south towards Egypt, there's a group of some smaller nations that were just really in the way. Philistia, where we talk about the Philistines, was sort of the most prominent there in the sense of they were on the direct path down to Egypt along the coast that they would have went. But right next to the, uh, uh, Philistia was, was a, a little place called Judah. And sort of above Judah, we have Israel, the northern kingdom. And so the, the uh, Assyria couldn't just come through and clip out Philistia without also dealing with Judah because Judah could just come over and cut off their supply line. And so they had to deal with these other nations. There's also Syria there where Damascus is. That was another smaller nation that was sort of in this same area. And so uh, what I love about this is we have a couple kings that have just some great names. And so first off, the really kind of most well-known, aggressive, major threat of an Assyrian king was a guy named Salmaneser III. Okay, if you're looking for child names, I don't necessarily recommend this unless you're really hoping to give birth to a warlord that decimates everybody in his path. Okay, uh, but that's Salmaneser III. He was a major threat. He led an aggressive campaign and he really caused um, Israel and Judah and a lot of these nations. So when you have a place like this, so you know, we could talk about this even today. When you see a place like Russia or China specifically, uh, or, or even a place like North Korea that's ramping up all of this military exploits and they're doing you know, all this kind of threatening behavior, what does that do? On a national level, other nations like ours, whether we do this very well or not, that's a different question, but we have to start thinking about our national budget towards defense. And so during this time period of sort of this Assyrian, you know, conquest, places like Judah and Israel and Syria, they're having to start ramping up their budgets for specifically national defense. And so this went on for some time. And uh, be, uh, beginning about 782, though, so from about 900 to 782, you know, good period of time, about 120 years, you had this, you know, Assyrian just massive conquest and their, their land spread giant. Do we have that map again? Can we go back to that? So, and you, um, did that come up earlier? Okay. And so uh, you see here, there's sort of two colors. It's easier to see on your app on the phone, but you'll see kind of two colors, this lighter color, which actually extends a lot further north as well. This is the Assyrian empire from uh, uh, at about 824. And then you see by 671, they basically took over about all of kind of that known world or occupied world in that space. And, and again, you have a bigger version of that in your, uh, in your app. Um, and so what they, what they did here uh, is kind of leading up to about 782, all of a sudden there was a little bit of time of respite. There was this little relief from this Assyrian uh, uh, conquest because there was about, uh, I think it was about three uh, uh, or four, or excuse me, about, it was about a 40-year period 
where they had a series of Assyrian kings that weren't quite as aggressive. And so they were kind of okay with, it was more of a rebuilding time. And so what that did during that time period is allowed Judah and Syria and, and, and uh, Israel and these places to sort of catch up on, on you know, building their nation and rebuilding places that had fallen and, and really start putting some money back into you know, the country and kind of building their defenses back up and everything else. And so they had about a 40 year respite. But then in 745, okay, now remember I said, uh, Isaiah is ministering to 740 to 700. So right kind of at the start of Isaiah coming on the scene, you have a guy, and this is one of my favorite names in scripture, Tiglath-Pileser III, okay? Another name for consideration for you young families. And Tiglath-Pileser, he's also referred to in the Old Testament as Pul, P-U-L, Okay. Same guy, maybe Pull's easier, maybe it was a nickname, uh, but Tiglath-Pileser and Pull are the same people that we see here. And um, he brought in sort of a new phase of Assyrian aggression that really would lead up until essentially the disappearance of their kingdom when eventually they were destroyed and conquered. And so you have all of this sort of geopolitical chaos happening around Judah, And also at the same time, you have a lot of problems within Israel and Judah themselves. One of those is that you have King Jeroboam II who died in 753, right before Tiglath-Pileser took power. And so the interesting thing about this, and we to some degree see this the same way, what's the most volatile times in a nation's you know, economy and, and uh, uh, socio-economic you know, uh, structure, cultural structure. It's usually during an election and sort of right when that new person is elected in. Because, you know, really by time they're there for any length of time, and this is the same thing, when we go to Kenya, we have to make sure when we go to East Africa that we do not go during an election year. Because if you go during election year, they'll have 400,000 people displaced. They'll have people, you know, attacks and tribal wars happening and all these different things. And then you come back there the next year and everybody's fine. Why? Because in between the powers, there's opportunities for chaos and uprisings to try to gain a political and a social and an economic foothold that you can't do when there's a strong leader in place. Okay? And so Jeroboam II dies, 753, And almost immediately after his own son who replaced him was then assassinated. So you have two leaders in Israel dying back to back, creating all sorts of havoc in the nation of Israel. Created instability and this proved highly challenging, which all of a sudden creates opportunities for a place like Assyria to start looking upon a nation and going, hey, they're not doing very good. Maybe this is a good time for us to start making a move here. Okay, uh, In Judah, you also had a changing of the guard where Uzziah, one of the kings in which Isaiah um, served under, was succeeded by his son, Jotham, in 740. You see a lot during especially Isaiah's um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, we'll see, a, you know, reign as prophet here in Israel or service as prophet in Israel. You see a lot of what's known as co-regencies. 
And these are basically time periods where you had multiple kings that were sort of serving, kind of two rulers at once. Usually it was a father and a son, that as the father was sort of transitioning out, the son would come in. You might see this in your small business or something like this. You've created a great small business, you're ready to retire, but you're not quite ready to have your son take it over yet. And so you have a co-regency for a time that you're sort of serving in this way alongside of each other, slowly giving that son more and more authority and decision-making and leading. And, And sometimes, you know, uh, uh, you know, realizing that they're not quite ready yet and, and you know, still going, but hey, I, but I'm the real king here, you know, and putting your fist down on, on what, uh, uh, what needs to happen. And so you see that sort of thing happening both in Israel and in, um, in, in Judah. And so uh, Uzziah succeeded uh, um, by his son Jotham in 740, and Jotham eventually would be replaced by his son Ahaz, okay, which was not a very good king. And then it would be, you know, after that, that we see Hezekiah uh, become king. So Ahaz, before this happens, uh, Ahaz had, uh, had a problem. And that problem was, first of all, there was a big problem. And the big problem was Assyria. And, and Assyria needed Judah out of the way in order to make it to Egypt. And so that was a major threat to Judah, And Judah and Israel had relationship, but they also had conflict. And there were times where they got along and there were times where they fought with each other. And a lot of that had to do with whether or not, you know, each side was following the Lord at that particular time. So they were a, they were one people divided in two kingdoms. Okay. Um, And, and uh, uh, you know, you might think of a place like Ireland that, you know, went through that, you know, uh, uh, sort of similar, you know, things in more modern history. Um, uh, And so what we see here is that, Ahaz, who really should be most concerned about Assyria, recognizes that he all of a sudden has a second problem. He's got this big grizzly bear of Assyria that wants to come and stomp all over his camp. But he's got a problem, and he's got two little mosquitoes called Syria and Israel that want him to either get in line with them or get out of the way and get off of the map. And so they start basically issuing an allegiance together, Syria and Israel, against Judah. Now, Judah, in the scheme of things, in the big scheme of things, should not be at all worried about Syria and Israel when you have a grizzly bear that is coming to demolish you. But King Ahaz sees them and puts more weight to their threats against Judah than he does Assyria itself. And so what does he do? He becomes a politician. And, and, and he really, you know, and there's kings and there's politicians. And, Israel, and Judah needed a king that sought the Lord, but instead they got a politician in Ahaz. And what Ahaz did is he essentially went to Assyria and says, hey, I know you guys are this big grizzly bear and you probably need me out of the way, but I got this problem. I got these two guys, you know, uh, uh, this, this King Pekah and this King Rezin from Syria, and they're coming against me. And you know what? I could really use some help with this situation here. Can you maybe offer a little support? And so what, what Judah does, because what they did have was, was money, they gave some money to Assyria, who also wants them off the map, and they made an, a, an allegiance with Assyria against Israel and Syria. 
And so this is King Ahaz. This is sort of where Isaiah starts, is that we see these, this judgment that is being declared by the prophet from God against Judah because Judah has chosen an allegiance to foreign kings and foreign gods and foreign idols over their dependence upon their God, Jehovah, Yahweh. And so we see Isaiah receive his call into ministry and we see him begin to speak out. And what does he say? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, but he's purified by this burning coal that purifies his message. In the same way, a people of unclean lips could be purified by God if they would allow him to purify them. And so this message and the same thing that's happening to Isaiah on a personal level, he says it's happening here in the nation of Israel and he begins kind of this voice and the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are judgment against Israel for all of these different situations in which they were putting their trust in horses or trust in, in Egypt or trust in you know, Assyria or trust in other gods and, and, and pagan idols rather than trusting in Jehovah, Yahweh. And so what happens here with Ahaz, and we can see, I think we have this in 2 Kings 16, 7 through 9, we have this. So it says, it says here, 2 Kings 16, 7 through 9, it says, so Ahaz sent messengers to King Tig, uh, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. He actually bows down to this king, this pagan king, worshiping pagan gods, and says, I am your servant and your son. That's politics. He literally sold out Judah because concerns for a little threat. And he sold it out to the big grizzly bear that wanted him off the map. March up and save me from the grass. I'm glad that never happens today, by the way. You know, <laughs> March up and save me from the grass for the king of Aram and of the king of Israel, who was the king of Aram is, is, is in Syria, king of Israel is obviously Israel, who are rising up against me. It goes on. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace, and he sent them to the king of Assyria as a bribe. So here you have him kind of sell out the nation, uh, give these things in order to gain you know, uh, um, some sort of protection from Tiglath-Pileser, and basically what Tiglath-Pileser says, hey, thanks for the money. And then he goes and he attacks Syria and he takes Damascus. And what does that do? Now all of a sudden, instead of just worrying about the little nation of Syria next to Judah, now we got Assyria is now right next door. Okay, and arguably wouldn't have been able to do that had he dealt with this in a different way and trusted in the Lord. And so that was in 732. That was the Damascus capital of Syria. Uh, so this freed Tiglath-Pileser to push kind of further north towards the northern, uh, towards northern Israel, the northern kingdom, while simultaneously he's trying to push south down into Egypt. So he's kind of going at this both directions. And so um, in, in Israel, you had uh, the, the king at that time, his name was Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, and he was succeeded by Hosea, and Hosea 
paid tribute initially to Syria, Assyria. And so um, there are lots of names and things here. This is why I want to make sure we get this, uh, at least some bearing on this, is that, that Pekah goes, hey, okay, uh, you just came in here and you took, you took out the guy I was partnered with in Syria, in Damascus. Rezin was the king's name. You just took him out off the map. And so what is, what is uh, Pekah, or what's uh, um, uh, Pekah's successor, uh, uh, Hosea does, is he goes, hey, I'm not stupid. Here's some money. What can I do for you? So he initially does that. And now at this time, Tiglath-Pileser is gone. And there's a new king, Salmaneser, not the third, but the fifth. And so he took back this name of this mighty king before him, you know, a couple hundred years prior, who started this whole Assyrian rampage. And Assyrian, uh, Salmaneser V rises up. Um, uh, to, to really come against you know, the, the known world at that time. And as this transition happens from Tiglath-Pileser to Salmaneser um, uh, in Assyria, in Israel, you have Hosea gets the idea and says, hey, wait a minute. They're in a time of sort of transition right now. This would be a perfect time to sort of pull back my support and because maybe the new guy doesn't even remember that we committed to it in the first place, and we're going to kind of revolt a little bit against this Assyrian occupation here that's happening. And so Judah, and if we go back to that map uh, again, if we have that, what you will see is that in all of this, so here this color of green is the, 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 the kind of more um, you know swampy green, we'll call it, uh, as opposed to the nice grassy green down here. If you're colorblind, I can't help you today because they're going to look exactly the same, I'm sure. Um, is this, this first kind of swampy green, this first one's the Syrian Empire to 1824, you can, or 824, you can see that they took Damascus, which is Syria, but they had not yet taken the northern kingdom and they had not yet at all touched Judah. In fact, even as they get to this next part, the farthest conquest of Assyria in 671, where they stop, they still never took Judah. So Jude, they did take the northern kingdom. That became part of them, okay? And for what we're talking about right now. But Judah never fell to Assyria. It would be Babylon that would do Judah eventually in that led them into exile. And this is what the second part of the book of Isaiah covers. And so you have this revolt that took place between Tiglath-Pileser and, and Salmaneser's reign, where basically uh, uh, that they're trying to you know, use this instability to leverage their own freedom. Salmaneser, though, eventually captures Samaria. And, you know, we hear this word Samaria, and if you've been around the church, I, I don't know if most people know this. If you've never traveled to Israel, you haven't really studied these maps before, because you hear the Jews talking about Samaria sort of in the New Testament language, and Samaria seems like, oh, it's this, it's this bad place, and it's this, this uh, um, you know, uh, that's, that's the mixed breed and, of people, and, and, you know, we're the, the pure Israel down here. What most people don't realize is Samaria was in Israel. It wasn't a separate land. Samaria was actually the capital of the northern kingdom. So Jerusalem was the, the city center, the state center within the southern kingdom of Judah. But Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Okay, And so um, he, uh, you see um, uh, Salmaneser V, 
he captures Samaria in 722, which is the same year that Hosea dies. We don't know exactly how Hosea died, but it's likely that he was actually killed in this conquest of Samaria uh, when Salmanesser V says, oh yeah, I noticed that you stopped sending money and by the way, we're coming for you. And then the Bible just tells us, you know, kind of, and, and uh, uh, you know, Hosea dies in that same year. Okay, and most likely he was, he was captured and killed as a result of this conquest of Samaria. And so about this time in Judah, so that, that's really where you know, the northern kingdom kind of gets swallowed up in this occupation by Assyria. But in Judah, what happens is that a co-regency develops in which Hezekiah was pushed to the throne alongside of his father Ahaz, who was the one that sold them out in the first place, to Assyria, okay? Hezekiah was not like his father. In fact, at the time, he was only 16 years old. And so Hezekiah comes in as this young king, uh, uh, still sharing some responsibilities, and from the outset, he pursued godly policies, and he attempted to reclaim Judah's dependence on God, and he refused to surrender to the Assyrians, which you could see he was successful in keeping them at bay, with the Lord's help, obviously. So, Meanwhile, we're doing good on time. I want to just let you know that. Meanwhile in Assyria, I'm sure you're all getting this, and hopefully you've got some notes in your app going here as well. Meanwhile in Assyria, and I'll tell you, if we have any sermon rewind groups and you want my full notes on this, I will be very friendly to you, okay? So just let me know. If you only pay tribute, we will make that happen. So, um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, so, so what you have here, I'm going to confuse myself if I don't be careful. So um, uh, what you have during this time period is that in Assyria, that there is then another, uh, it's actually a son of Tiglath-Pileser who rises up and he overthrows his brother, Salmaneser V. And he declares himself as any good uh, uh, ruthless ruler should, king of the world. And so he declares himself, I am king of the world. Uh, I am, um, you know, uh, uh, this, uh, his, his name was Sargon II. And Sargon declares himself to be king of the world. Another nice baby name for you. And he picks up his father's legacy and he pushed south towards Egypt and he defeats the Philistines along the way and gets them off the map. And now all that you have left, they've pushed through Syria, they've pushed through the northern kingdom, they've now pushed through uh, Philistia, and they are now down to only Judah is left on the map here, left in the game as they are pushing down toward Egypt. So for Hezekiah, um, he uh, basically, what during this time period, and again, we're overlapping some of this a little bit, before Sargon II took power from his brother, um, uh, Shalmaneser the fifth, while, while Shalmaneser was focused on all these little minor skirmishes with all these small nations that he had to get out of the way in order to get to Egypt, you know, like, like uh, uh, Philistia, that gave Hezekiah an opportunity to perform significant reforms in Judah to prepare them. So he used the distraction of Assyria during that time period and this, you know, what's the practical, you know, what's practical application for this? I think there's a ton through this whole thing. But in this moment, you know, it's very easy when, when you feel like you're in a time of like, oh man, there's no attacks right now. I get to rest. That's not what Hezekiah did. 
Every opportunity that, that when there was a reprieve from warfare, what we see in Judah is as much, when there was godly rulers in place, is that they would use that as a time to rebuild the nation, to rebuild the religious structure of the nation, to rebuild uh, um, uh, the coffers so they had money for national defense and, and to fortify their cities and all these different things in order to prepare for the future of what could happen. You know, the same thing is when the economy is good, you should be preparing for when the economy is bad. This goes for your business, it goes for the church, it goes for your personal family, all of those things. And Hezekiah did this, and he carried out significant reform in Judah. He strengthened their national defense. And, um, and while he was quite successful in this, some of his allies were pushing to have Judah form an allegiance with Egypt because they were the only two guys left on the map. And so, hey, let's go down there and kind of get Egypt on our side with this. And maybe between the two of us, we can kind of issue and maybe see Assyria push back a little bit. And so they spent some time in this and, and basically, um, you know, to, to stand against this Assyrian military force, which was, you know, really, I mean, decimated. I mean, if, if you're, if for the younger generation here or any Marvel fans, I mean, you know, the, the Assyrian army is about the closest to Thanos that you're going to see. I mean, it was every nation that they came across, they completely wiped out. They completely took them off the map. They completely went in and decimated them. They killed their kings. They killed their leaders. They killed their priests. They made them worship their gods and they just annihilated everybody in their way. And so with Egypt and, and Judah, only ones on the map, they start looking going, hey, maybe we can get along. I know we've got some bad blood. There was that whole 400 years of slavery thing, but what's that? We could be friends, right? And so during this time, there is yet another regime change in Assyria and Sargon is killed, potentially in a battle, potentially overthrown by somebody around him. Uh, but we, we think a battlefield. And he was succeeded by his son, Sennacherib. Okay, and so he takes over. And so he then um, begins continuing the fight. He has a, a, a battle with Babylon and after he uh, uh, fights off a Babylonian revolt, now again, if you, if you know your history, Babylon's kind of just picking up steam while this is happening. You know, they're, they're kind of just being quiet in the corner. There's a couple skirmishes here with Assyria, but eventually Babylon would be the one to defeat Assyria. And so they're just sort of gaining some, some momentum over here while Assyria is focused on Philistia, uh, um, uh, it's, focused on, it's focused on Judah, and ultimately it's, it's conquest to get to Egypt. And so what happens is um, we have uh, some initial help uh, promised from Egypt to Judah, but guess what? It never comes to pass. They never show up. They, they're not reliable in that, okay? They got their own problems. And the main city then of the Philistines are captured. So what that leaves is basically Judah is all that's left on the map. And you have Hezekiah there as king. So he sends a giant gift to the king of Assyria saying, hey, can we just, you know, can we just agree to disagree? Here's some money and let's be good. Well, that doesn't stop Sennacherib. And so he continues to push and he comes and he marches to the gates of Jerusalem, okay? 
Now, again, this is, this is an overview of the first 39 chapters here in terms of geopolitically what's happening. What we're gonna do next week is we're gonna go in and we're actually gonna dive into some moments through this to really see the ministry of Isaiah and to see the heart of the prophet as he is leading Israel through this. But I wanted you to have a little bit of framework in order to get there first. And so what happens is the king of Assyria sends his commanders, they march up to the gates of Jerusalem. And at this time, you know, we think, well, they're just coming after Jerusalem. Well, in order to get to Jerusalem, they had to do some damage already. It's, it's believed that they took about 40 to 45 different uh, um, fortresses in Judah before they ever got to Jerusalem. So this isn't just they show up. I mean, you don't just show up to Washington, D.C., you got to deal with Hawaii. You got to deal with Guam. You got to deal with other provinces along the way. You have to deal with the coastal cities. You know, if you're going to make an attack against our nation, you know, you have to deal with some other places. You know, you don't you don't just get to the middle of, of the nation. Okay, maybe DC is a bad example because it's on the coast. But you know, this is you don't just show up there. You don't get just get to Israel without forming this. So they had fortified these these attacks against. Uh, all these places in, in Judah and, and coming now against Jerusalem, they've got 45 cities or so that have been you know, destroyed and now they're at the gates of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is inside, Isaiah is inside and the city would normally hold about 20 or 30,000 people but what would happen is you'd have all these people that would live outside of the city gates and Jerusalem had very strong walls, fortified walls at this time yeah, but you, when you, all of a sudden you see that the Assyrian army is coming against you, if you live outside of the city gates, where do you go? You go inside of the city gates and, and what happens when you have a place that's supposed to hold 20 or 30,000 people that now all of a sudden is holding two, three, four times that and they are packed in. You have issues with food. You have issues, which eventually, if you have a, a siege put against you, can lead to starvation. It can lead to you know, dehydration and, and lack of you know, water. Uh, and, and, and you have also, you have an issue because your plumbing system's not designed. For, I mean, it's like your house at Thanksgiving or Christmas. You need the plungers handy, okay? Sorry to be a little crude here. Actually, the passage in Isaiah is much more crude than I'm being. But you have a plumbing issue that takes place when you have that many people sieged in, in, for, in the fortified area and they cannot leave. So as Sennacherib comes up and he comes against Hezekiah, what we do is we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. And as we kind of you know, prepare to close in this time, I want to take you there and I want to show you what took place. So here we go. Isaiah 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them, about 40 or 45. Goes on. Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman along with a massive army from Lachish. Lachish was the second largest city in Judah. So basically what, you know, they take Lachish and now all that's left is Jerusalem. And he goes from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he's like, hey, we just wiped those guys out. Got a message for you. And the Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. It goes on. And Elikim, uh, a son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, who used to be actually in charge of the palace, and, and Joah, son of uh, Asaph, uh, the court historian, came out to him. So here you have this delegation, this very proper delegation comes out from Judah. And they're like, can we help you? 
And it goes on here. It says, the royal spokesman said to them, tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria says this, what are you relying on? You think mere words are strategy and strength for war? Who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? Look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it. Now, what what he's saying, you know, if you have a reed, you know, if you go out in a swampland or something like that, and and you could probably say the same thing about, you know, a a stalk of corn or, or, um, you know, sugar cane or something like that. When you have the plant and it's all intact, you can kind of see this. There's nothing, you know, it's not, it's, there's not a problem. What's a problem is when that becomes splintered and then it's got all these sharp points that are coming up. So you might be able to walk through reeds and get by unscathed until you have a splintered reed that just kind of pierces right into you, okay? And this is what they're referring to. They're saying, look, you tried to lean on Egypt, but what you didn't realize is they're a splintered reed and they're gonna pierce your side. Pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. Okay, so um, uh, I think we have one more. Is that that through uh, verse eight? No, we got uh, verse eight then. I didn't read seven. Okay, no, sorry, go back. Uh, There we go. Suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar? So here's this whole speech. I wish I had time to go through all of it. Uh, I encourage you to read 36 and 37, you know, now with some more context. But this this, uh, um, leader of the Assyrian army, he comes out and his speech is brilliant. I mean, this is a guy, you want to buy a used car from this guy because he is a great salesman. And he basically shows up and he says, guys, we just came from Lachish and and they send the regards as we annihilated them along the way. And we're here outside of your city gate and we're about to annihilate you. And oh, oh, were you relying on Egypt? Because where are they? They didn't show up. So do you really want to go that route? And then he goes on, he says, oh, oh no, you want to trust in your king who, who took, got rid of all the high places that were places of worship to your God? You think that your God likes him? Now here's the thing is, I mean, and, and all of this, actually, this leader is speaking in Hebrew. The Assyrian leader is speaking in Hebrew. The trade language uh, um, uh, was, was um, Aramaic. And, and instead of speaking in Aramaic, he's speaking in Hebrew so, you know, because the, the, the officials that came out to greet him from Judah, they would have spoken both Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, but the people, the guards at the walls would have only spoken Hebrew. And these officials go, hey, can you just please speak, just please speak he, uh, uh, um, Aramaic? Can't we speak our trade language so we don't have to alert everybody else about this right now? And he goes, no, I want them to know what's about to happen to them. Now, the, 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 the amazing thing is that Hezekiah took down these high places because he was supposed to. God told him to because these high places were a place of kind of hybrid worship between pagan gods and, and the God of Israel. And that was, never the, that was never the prescribed method. They were to worship at the temple. And so I, I, um, Hezekiah tears these down, but uh, to a pagan king and a pagan, uh, pagan uh, you know, military of, uh, a leader, he comes out there and he goes, you're gonna trust this guy who tore down all your, basically he's thinking, he tore down all your churches? God's mad at him not understanding the God of Israel. And so he goes on, he issues all these things, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you know, have to drink each other's, you know, uh, excrement and all this sort of stuff along the way because you're stuck in the city and you're never going to get out. I mean, just some, just some, you know, he throws it all at him. And so they go back and they tell Hezekiah this. And we have the next passage here. 
It says, when King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went to the Lord's temple. It goes on. And when, and when he sent Elakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests who were covered with sackcloth to, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. That he goes, I mean, I mean, Hezekiah, he goes before the Lord, he actually prays the Lord, and he goes, go get the prophet. It goes on. It says, they said to him, this is what Hezekiah says. Today is the day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. It is as if children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of the royal spokesman whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and he will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer. So the, servant, the servants of King Hezekiah went to Isaiah and said, who said to them, tell your master, the Lord says this, don't be afraid because the words you have heard with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. I am about to put a spirit in him and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Okay, and then I think we have one more, is there one more passage here? Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, I'm kind of jumping ahead a few verses, Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. See, this is what, the, this is what Judah should have done every single time somebody came against them. But finally here, Hezekiah goes to the Lord and goes on, listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. He acknowledges the facts. They've overthrown their gods in the fire, for they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands, so they have destroyed them. Now, Lord, our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. So, and, and Hezekiah prays this prayer. Um, they, they basically send word back to uh, uh, Sennacherib and, and, the, and the leader of his army. And, and, you know, just to fast forward this a little bit, here's what happens, is basically the prophecy is that there's gonna be, you know, 180,000 people that are going to fall by the sword or are basically gonna fall dead as a result. And, and so we don't know exactly what happened. It's a little bit vague. But what we see is that here you have the entire, entire Assyrian army outside of Jerusalem could have easily destroyed them, sieged them. And basically Isaiah prophesies and says that, king's, or that, that king is gonna go back the way he came. And what you have and what appears is that basically in one day, you have literally the entire army falls over and you see the king just leave. Now, the amazing thing is in the Assyrian history, the way in which this is recorded, they're bragging about all their exploits and they get to this and they're kind of like, instead of saying we were decimated and we had to turn around, it's kind of like, uh, you know what? We decided that wasn't so important, so we went home. <laughs> and so you see this on both sides, which is really amazing. But here you have a time for Judah returned to their trust in the Lord and they saw their victory. Amen? Okay, I'm gonna pray for us here and we're gonna transition to uh, uh, just uh, honoring some of our families and, and kids here. And so, um, and, and again, this is kind of just setting the stage for where we're going next week. Uh, so a little bit different uh, content than maybe, maybe normal, but hopefully enjoyed uh, kind of building some greater framework for what's there. Uh, Father, thank you. 
And Lord, I pray that we can learn from this, Lord, because so many of us, we feel surrounded at times. We feel uh, under siege at times. We feel uh, as if there are just all these armies coming against us in life. Sickness, disease, debt, uh, relationship problems, um, uh, um, just you know, uh, issues at work, Lord. All these things mount up against us, and oftentimes, Lord, we don't know what to do or where to go. And Father, I just pray that you would um, give us strength and help us to remember that you are our source and you are our God and that, that, that trusting in chariots and trusting in Egypt and trusting in, in, in foreign rulers and pagan gods, Lord, that, that those things will never, ever, ever give us the, the, um, the, the strength, the, 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 uh, the hope, the source, the, uh, um, uh, the protection, the blessings that we have in you. There is no alternative to trusting in you, Lord. None other works. You're the one. And so, Lord, we trust in you, Lord. And I just thank you as we transition this time, Lord, for our families that are making a declaration of trust in you. And we just, we just, uh, we, we acknowledge you today, uh, not just in this church, but in the home as well, Lord. It's in your name, amen. All right, so I wanna invite up, um, I think we got uh, uh, Katie and um, Diana joining you. Okay. All right, so Katie Farron will hand this off to you. Katie Bean, I'm so sorry. Maiden name, sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> Hello. Um, so I'm Katie Bean. I'm kind of head over the children's ministry here at Influence. And um, <laughs> we wanted to take the time to recognize our families who have decided to dedicate their children today um, here to Influence and um, just partner with us with that. Um, Diana, if you would like to help me. Um, so first we have CJ and Deanna Hawk um, with little Amelia Joy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Would you guys come on over here? Yep. We'll just have you come up here. Oh, yeah, yeah, just, just right down. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And then we have... We have Zach and Maddie Book with Hannah, Elena, and Gabriel. And then we have Jake and Brianna Daniels with Ryan, David, and Eliana. Michael and Courtney Blackford with Sterling, Callie, and Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have anything that you would like? To I just want to quick, you know, I think about the world we live in today. And how I thought it was hard raising babies. This is one of mine 30 years ago. And now... I think about what children are faced with today and what parents are faced with today and the decisions they have to make. It's a chaotic world. 
And I just want to encourage, this was a great step for them to do this, but I want to encourage the church family to always take a moment and whatever, you, you know, whatever comes across your mind or just a hug, a high five, a loving on these kids so they will continue to walk in the ways of the Lord yeah. all the days of their life. Yeah, that's good. Nothing more important. Mm. So I encourage the church, this is why we're doing this. We're doing this so you, you're all invited to help with these children. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to say, um, I look back to Psalms 127.3, and it says, children are a gift from the Lord, and they are a reward from Him. Yeah. And I, I love that just because I think sometimes we need a reminder, even though it should just be so common sense, you know, that these kids are here for a reason. He's a blessing they're, they're all blessings from the Lord. You know, even before they were here, they were formed. And so going forward, I think we have to remember that. Um, and so my hope and dream for you guys is that, like, you're here for a reason. And we're so glad that you decided to partner with us and help. We're all a family. And so to help you guys raise your kids. And um, I'm just excited to see where it takes you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm just happy you're here. Awesome. Let me pray for you guys. And uh, uh, if you want to just want you turn towards me here, we'll, uh, we'll do that. And if you guys just want to kind of stretch out your hands for these guys here, Father, we just thank you. And Lord, we thank you for these families. And Lord, just making a decision that in their house and their place and their land, that you're the king and that, that their children are going to grow throughout all the stages of their life knowing that in, in their home that you are God. And so, Lord, I pray that, that your principles would reign, Lord, that, you're, uh, that, that, just a, um, that there would just be a, 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 an identity that is cultivated in these houses that I belong to the Lord. I'm loved. I have a place. I have, I have purpose that all these other things in the life that are coming against me, trying to tempt me, trying to lead me astray, that those are distractions to my true calling and my true identity in you. And so, Lord, I just thank you for your goodness. I thank you for each one of these families, Lord, and each one of the, of the, uh, the, the babies, the children, and the students in front of us. And, Lord, I pray that this would just be a time of recognition, realization, and, and, and really, in some ways, repurposing of, of what it is that takes place in these homes and these marriages here. So, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace in our lives. May all of us be able to do our part in just encouraging, standing alongside, supporting these families as they move forward in Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. Awesome, awesome. We got a good-looking group up here, huh? Very good, very good. All right, well, we love you guys. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Please have a great Sunday. Look forward to seeing you next week as we continue this series on Isaiah.